Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, a very interesting conversation with John Hawkins, the CEO of Heritage Gas. And it was interesting uh, not only to hear about what the company is currently doing, but what it plans to do going forward to become a greener company and to help get to net zero. Yeah, that's right. I I was always worried that all this natural gas infrastructure was being built and it was just going to be, you know, it has 70, 80, 90 year lifespan on this infrastructure. And I thought it was just going to be have to be abandoned. But now they're talking about using it to actually distribute hydrogen or, or a mix of natural gas and hydrogen. So yeah, I think the listeners are going to be very interested to hear what he has to say about natural gas as part of the solution to get us to net zero by 2050. Uh, the one thing that I was so surprised about, and I didn't know this, but uh, they have almost as many commercial customers as they do uh, residential customers. In fact, I think it's their strategy to go after large uh, commercial users. So they've already converted some of the bigger users of energy in the province. Michelin plants are all natural gas. The hospitals are all natural gas. Universities are all natural gas. And they've already green the environment quite a bit through those conversions alone. I think what he said, if I'm not mistaken, is that natural gas is 40, does 40% less GHGs than oil. I don't know. Maybe I got that number wrong, but I think it's significant. Uh, so that was a big surprise. The other, the other, the other point was, is that their uh, energy that they distribute is equivalent to about a quarter of the energy that Nova Scotia Power delivers. I was really taken back by that number. I, I thought it would be much smaller. That's a significant number. Yeah, certainly because of the large commercial and industrial users using natural gas. But of course, they have to bring all that gas in from the U.S. or from Western Canada or through the LNG terminal in St. John. So in some cases, he never told us this, but I know this from other conversations. In some cases, they're actually paying more to get the gas here then they're paying for the underlying molecules, the actual gas itself. So that, and I know you've been talking a lot about using our own natural gas and developing our yes. own natural gas, but that seems to me continues to be a little bit of a thorn in our side down here that we have to bring that gas all the way from Alberta or from uh, Trinidad and Tobago uh, when we have it right under our feet here in the region. Yeah, he said something really interesting that I thought uh, I didn't know as well. He said that uh, they can get natural gas from coal beds, and in fact, they've estimated that there's enough uh, natural gas from that one source alone, that, which does not, in fact, should not be used, fracking should not be used to extract that. And there would be sufficient gas from that source alone to serve their clients for the next 100 years. So I'm asking myself a question, why are we not going after that gas as a source of energy? He mentioned that uh, Nova Scotia alone is sending a half a billion dollars outside the province to buy energy, where a lot of that is native to Nova Scotia, as it is in, no in New Brunswick. Like, I think we need to have a serious discussion again about using our own natural resources in this region. Absolutely. And quite frankly, um, we could have actually been uh, part of the solution in Europe uh, to this war in Ukraine if we had if we had been developing our natural gas fields and if we had seen the Goldboro uh, LNG export terminal. So there's lots of what ifs there. But the bottom line is, I think it is you're right. It is worth taking another look to say over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Is there an economic case there uh, to to actually develop our own gas? But you got to get public support. Uh, this is the problem. It was the problem in Nova Scotia. That was the problem in New Brunswick when they looked at it earlier. Uh, let me just interject because I mentioned in our conversation is that, you know, I was following public opinion on this issue, both in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick for over a long period of time. And I remember the last research that I did on it before I sold my company, it had flipped to the majority in favor of uh, extracting those natural resources. But the problem at the time is that we had governments both in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick that were philosophically against it. That has changed. Now we have two conservative governments that are much more open uh, to using those resources. And maybe maybe it's just a question of timing here. I don't know. But, you know, I think that you know that conversation needs to happen again. Uh, and I hope that maybe this might spur some people to have that conversation. 
The only other thing I'd point out is I also like this idea of the hydrogen hub concept because mm. we generate a lot of economic activity from the production of energy, whether it's the coal-fired plants or the nuclear plant here or, or, or just the production of gener energy. And yep. my concern is that as that stuff all goes offline, if we're just going to import that all from Quebec, it'll be the same as importing our natural gas. So if we can develop our own hydrogen here, the supply chain here, and generate the economic benefits here, I think that's very exciting. And John gave us a little understanding of what that could look like. Yeah, we're going to have some future podcasts uh, on some interesting developments in hydrogen. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but I'm very excited by uh, what uh, John was talking about in, in terms of, uh, we asked him a hard question. We said, what percentage of uh, energy would come from hydrogen over the next uh, period of time? And, uh, you know, something like 20 to 30% perhaps could be generated by locally developed hydrogen. And most of it will be green because it'll, it'll probably come from wind power or maybe tidal power. Uh, and we had a conversation about that recently as well uh, with sustainable marine. So there's a lot of convergence here, don't you think? I find there's a lot of convergence happening here, which is very encouraging. And a future podcast, we'll be talking about small modular reactors. So that'll kind of wrap up the sort of interesting new uh, green or greenish sources of energy that are on the horizon. Listen, I, I, I know you want to do a rant on the Atlantic Loop. So this is your opportunity. <laughs> Go. Well, so 15 years ago, uh, uh, NB Power was being proposed to, to be sold to Hydro-Quebec. Hydro-Quebec was going to pay $5 billion plus wipe out NB Power's debt, plus give some sort of a, a hopefully, uh, that was still being worked out, but some sort of a reasonable rate structure moving forward. Uh, and, of course, that deal fell through. And now, 15 years later, the proposal is basically the same thing. Bring in Quebec Hydro, uh, but have the federal government pay $5 billion to build out the infrastructure needed to get that um, uh, electricity into the Maritimes at, without Hydro-Quebec paying a penny, right? The feds pay it all. So, so all they had to do was wait 15 years and they get everything they ever wanted without paying a penny. So I, I'm just completely annoyed by that. <laughs> If it makes sense, I'm not going to be opposed to it. But, you know, I just think we should have dialed back 15 years ago. And if we had a little view of the future, you know, we would have done that deal. I mean, we would have had to hold our nose. Nobody wants Hydro-Quebec to own the power system in New Brunswick. But it was probably the best deal. Now that $5 billion in NB Power asset, debt, uh, that debt is probably, most of that is probably stranded. We'll probably never be able to pay that off in rates. Uh, and I think everybody knows it. it's the worst kept secret. Um, but at the end of the day, that could have all been wiped out by this deal back in 2015. And I remember doing debates where I was pro, uh, pro the sale, and I was just castigated. I mean, I was I was the you know run, basically run out of dodge. Uh, and now looking back 15 years <laughs> later, I think I probably had the right idea. Do you feel better now? I do. Thank you for allowing <laughs> me to rant. Appreciate it. Uh, I remember that time very well. Uh, this is uh, during. Sean Graham's time, wasn't it? Yes. And, uh, and the big mistake that that government made at the time is they did not prepare the population for the op opportunity. They missed that. They missed that, that piece. I think they had done that. There was a better chance of that deal going through. But people were caught completely off guard by it. They didn't understand the, the reasons for it. And it was just bad. It was bad execution of a good idea. 100%. Anyway. Here's our conversation <laughs> with John Hawkins, the CEO of Heritage Gas. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We would like to begin by finding out a little bit about your career path to your current role with Heritage Gas. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you, how you ended up uh, as CEO of Heritage? Sure. I uh, graduated from what was then the Technical University of Nova Scotia and is now part of Dalhousie with a uh, Bachelor of Chemical Engineering. And uh, then uh, got my first job in the newsprint industry down with Bowater Mersey Paper Company on the south shore of the province. And I worked in that industry for uh, 15 years and it became uh, an increasingly challenging <laughs> industry, uh, as uh, you may appreciate with the eventual shutting of the mill. But prior to that, my uh, my wife had one, one day looked across the breakfast table and said, it may be time to, to move on. So <laughs> she's always uh, been a source of great career advice for me. So I, uh, I applied for a, a position with uh, Nova Scotia Power, managing their 
transportation and distribution uh, segment in the central region, the T&D uh, portion of their business. And uh, what followed was uh, some really uh, great opportunities to work in a variety of NSP's uh, business sectors. So that included uh, several years with their wind and uh, hydro division, uh, where I had the good fortune of managing a couple of the first wind turbines, commercial scale wind turbines in the province in the Annapolis Tidal Station. Then went on from there to uh, manage the uh, Tufts Cove Generating Station over in Dartmouth and uh, their fleet of combustion turbines. And then my last position with the company, I was uh, responsible for fuels, energy, and risk management. So I dis- my team dispatched the uh, generating fleet and the renewable assets of, of the electric utility. And uh, we also purchased all of the fuel for, for the uh, generating station. So that, that's been my career path up until 2014 when I had the opportunity to join Heritage Gas, which is a natural gas distribution company uh, in most parts of Nova Scotia. I joined in 2014 and in 2017, I became uh, president of, of the company. So Heritage Gas has the franchise rights to distribute natural gas to all or part of six counties in the province. Can you tell us where natural gas is currently available uh, and then how many residential customers do you have and how many commercial customers? Sure. Uh, we distribute to, to residents, businesses, uh, institutions, and uh and industrial customers in Amherst, Oxford, Stellarton, Picto, Dartmouth, uh, and uh, a very large portion of, of HRM, including most of Peninsular HRM, but also you know much of the surrounding uh, populace in Clayton Park, Bedford, Spryfield, et cetera. We've grown organically over time. And then we also have a compressed natural gas business that uh, delivers mainly to larger industrial co- customers. And so we have customers in between ourselves and others that use our compression station. We have customers in uh, Lunenburg, Annapolis County, Kings uh, County, and East and West uh, Hans County. So what we can't get to by pipeline, we try to serve uh, through, uh, through CNG. And, and I'll just mention Heritage Gas is part of a larger company called Tri Summit Utilities. And we have utilities in... Uh, in uh, Alberta and BC, and we've just also made an offer to purchase the uh, natural gas utility in the state of Alaska. So um, a growing business and one that also has hydro and uh, wind assets. So it's a, it's a diversified company. So do you mind telling us roughly how many customers you have? Yeah, so we have, uh, in, so I'll, I'll start by prefacing it by saying we're a a new utility, uh, 19 years old. So I sometimes refer to us as still a a teenager by utility standards. Uh, So we have 4,700 residential customers and 3,600 commercial customers. Um, What's sometimes surprising, I know it was was to me when we ran the stats, is that we're almost a quarter of the size of Nova Scotia Power on an energy-delivered basis. So we have what sounds like a relatively small customer base, but it's really the customers that we serve. We serve, as I was saying before, you know, many of the largest employers and industries in the province, many of the, the institutions, so all of the hospitals and universities here in, uh, in, H, in and around HRM, plus uh, some that are further afield through, through CNG. So, uh, so even though, again, it's, it sounds like a small uh, number in terms of the economic contribution and the size of the customers we serve, it's, it's, uh, it's fairly uh, meaningful, uh, particularly since a lot of those customers are the largest employers, most well-paying jobs, and really are the backbone of their uh, economy in many of those rural regions. Just a quick follow-up, John. Um, the CNG, do you have exclusive rights to deliver that, or are there other companies in that space? There are, uh, there is one other company in that space, and uh, but we have the sole uh, compression station that takes gas off of uh, the M&P Maritimes and Northeast pipeline, and then com- we have a compression station out by the airport that compresses the natural gas and puts it into tube trailers. And so, as you're going, as you and your listeners are going up and down the highway, you may occasionally notice the tube trailers that are uh, delivering. Uh, clean and affordable energy to uh, to some of those uh, large customers I was re- referring to. Uh, John, maybe you can just uh, help our listeners understand uh, how the cost of uh, natural gas currently compares with other forms of energy, like electricity, 
in oil, for instance? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, we have a very significant economic advantage to uh, to oil and Bunker C included, and and actually many of those large customers that uh, have come over to Heritage Gas through the course of time have converted over from from Bunker C and oil. It was uh, largely on, on the basis of economic reasons, but in doing so, uh, they've significantly reduced the GHG emissions in the province, going from you know uh, something that's materially more uh, GHG carbon intensive than than natural gas. And we're we have a competitive advantage to electric baseboard, and we we are now currently competitive with uh, electric heat pumps and with propane, and of course the, these things change with time, obviously, as commodities go up and down. We have a natural gas heat pump trial uh, in progress right now, which we think will further improve our competitive uh, position and offers uh, some significant efficiency savings to our customers. Just a a quick follow-up. Do you ever see a a time in the future where you might deliver compressed gas to residential homes? It's not currently economic, well, no, let me back up a bit. We we actually looked at a project in uh, Antigonish and we were going to set up a uh, CNG uh, station in, in Antigonish where we would deliver uh, natural gas by tube trailers. And then we were going to supply some of the larger loads in the uh, in the town of Antigonish to start with. And then from there, we would build out a natural gas distribution system. So so yes, we, we have... Uh, we have uh, studied this quite intensely, and it's something that uh, is still uh, on our horizon. Um, and it, it just was delayed for for a number of reasons. But we we will be revisiting it, and and along the same lines, uh, we are thinking about some of the uh, communities that are remote to our distribution network. Can we deliver hydrogen? you know, greenfield hydrogen distribution to some of those communities. So that's something that we're thinking about as well. So just to be clear for the listeners, John, what you would do is you would distribute the CNG to some sort of point, and then it would be distributed through its, uh, uh, through pipes to the individual homes. You wouldn't put take CNG to the individual home. That's, that's correct. So when I started by answering that, it wouldn't be uh, economic to, to take some CNG and, and park it beside a single residential home. Uh, but it, it, it is uh, economic, we think, based on, upon some of the work that we've done to, uh, to deliver it by to a decanting station, which would decompress it and put it into a, a distribution system. So that's certainly on our, on our, uh, uh, our planning uh, horizon. Uh, maybe you could tell us what the uh, source of natural gas that you use today in Nova Scotia, where does it come from? Yeah, so it comes from a variety of locations. So Western Canada obviously has a, a lot of uh, natural gas. And so some of that is actually delivered on under transportation contracts to, uh, to the uh, region. There's natural gas being delivered here under transportation contracts to uh, from central Canada, and also from the uh, from the United States, the other source and so that's all uh, delivered by uh, underground pipeline. The other source that uh, I know you're both familiar with is regasified LNG that's coming through the uh, St. John uh, LNG facility. One of the follow-up questions we want to ask is the opportunities to source more natural gas within the Maritimes. We know there's lots of natural gas based on at least what we're hearing in the news. <clears throat> People don't want to extract it because it has to be fracked, I guess. But do you have any idea about the resources for natural gas within, well, I guess New Brunswick mainly in, in Nova Scotia? It's still offshore Nova Scotia too, John. There could be potential. Yes, although uh, that's, um, that's I think that's more challenging in some respects, maybe less challenging in, in others. But we do have significant uh, reserves of natural gas in Nova Scotia. So if you look at coal bed methane, which... Is, is not something that requires fracking. In fact, in fact, fracking would <laughs> would not uh, would be detrimental to extracting coal bed <laughs> methane. Uh, and so we have significant reserves here. I think we did a calculation once based upon government figures that uh, that there's enough uh, coal bed methane in the in the county of Pictou 
to power our or to you know uh, supply us and our customers for for a hundred years. <laughs> so there's no wow. lack of uh, resource. And and you may have better insight into New Brunswick, but uh, you know in Fredericksbrook uh, shale deposit, there's been a lot of work to suggest that there's vast vast quantities of uh, of natural gas there. And uh, and and so we we have been looking at at the opportunity for coal bed methane. There's a company called East Coast Energy, which has been pursuing the development of coal bed methane in Pictou County for, for some time. And, uh, and so we, uh, we have a memorandum of understanding with them, um, you know, once they get to the point of having all of their permits in place, et cetera. Yeah. I noticed yeah, in this, Europe this... that, sorry, sorry, Don, I was yeah, just no. going to say, I noticed in Europe, yeah. they're, they're filling up all the reserves with gas now for the winter. There was a big natural gas storage project proposed for Nova Scotia. Did, is that off the table? And would that have helped moderate prices for natural gas in Nova Scotia? It would have helped tremendously to moderate prices and to improve the competitive position of our industries here in Nova Scotia and in, and within the region overall. When we uh, submitted our application to contract for that, and this goes back to 2014, so some time ago now, um, we were estimating that it would save $2 per gigajoule and I've, you know, there's all sorts of energy units out there, but just to provide some context, you know, our average long-term price on the commodity is probably $10 a gigajoule. So we would have taken two, you know, $2 off of that. So that's, mm -hmm. a, you know, it's hard to get that sort of price uh, reduction. And of course, the, 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 the huge benefit is you buy gas in the summer at low prices, put it in storage, and then you withdraw that relatively inexpensive uh, gas in the uh, in the winter but Alta gas was the uh, that was our former parent we're no longer associated with them but they uh, they have uh, you know stopped uh, that project and uh, you know I, I guess it, uh, the best way to describe it is you know they've, they've written off the uh, the work that they've done there and are kind of in the uh, remediation phase I guess you'd you'd call it the topic of uh, using our own resources is something that I've been personally interested in for a very long time I used to poll the public on their support of, uh, uh, you know, extracting actual gas. And, and what I found over the latter years is that there was an increasing percentage, a majority of people who favored using those resources. And I think that there's actually a little bit more political interest, certainly in New Brunswick, I, I think, David. And I'm not sure about Nova Scotia, but I believe uh, because we have a conservative government, more interest in Nova Scotia and getting access to those natural resources. And um, so, you know, I think we need to keep talking about this, this subject. I think it's something that we should not lose sight of as an opportunity for the region. I, I agree, uh, you know, having worked at, at the Provincial Electric Utility and now here at, uh, at Heritage Gas, I can tell you that, you know, there's probably in excess of half a billion dollars that leaves this province in the form of procuring fuel and energy from outside the region. That's just the two utilities. And we are small in comparison to refined petroleum products. So refined petroleum products that are 60% are of end use energy emissions here in the province. Uh, and often we, we are very focused on electricity, but electricity is only 25% of end use here. Uh, in the province. So when we think about hydrogen, it's a, just this tremendous opportunity to have that money that's flowing out of the province to the benefit of uh, Central and Western Canada, the United States, Colombia, in the case of coal, uh, to have some of that, that, that economic value come to us and uh, in the form of high paying jobs and, and that, you know, and everything that comes from that. I don't think people understand just how big that number is. Five hundred million. I just want to reiterate what John said. Five hundred million dollars a year in imported gas that could be extracted. No, not just gas, but I'm talking about the gas, coal. Right, 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 right. right. The fuels, yeah. right? Imported fuels, heavy, yeah. Heavy fuel, yeah. For so for just, just for the two utilities. Yeah. yeah. So if you produce that here, that obviously all of the multipliers and economic spinoffs and royalties and everything like that would occur here. So it's a very interesting point. Just one last uh, question on supply, John. What If there is an LNG export terminal, and the Prime Minister actually expressed his support for one this week, uh, if there is an East Coast terminal, is that going to help your prices or, or be neutral when it comes to your prices? Having all Well, this has been... 
this has been talked about <laughs> for many, many years, uh, you know, con converting the uh, import terminal to an export terminal. And, and there's more conversation about it now for, you know, given the situation in Ukraine. And my answer to that over the last, say, decade, <laughs> as it's been discussed, is on the balance of probability, I would think that it would be helpful. Pipeline infrastructure will have to be built out. It'll have to be substantive pipeline infrastructure. In theory, the tolls will be smaller because you're moving, you know, large amounts of gas through uh, through the same pipe. And, you know, we're getting access presumably to Western Canadian gas as part of that, which, which is generally very uh, cost competitive. So that's, that's my answer. The, the other possibility that uh, weighs a little bit against that is if we become a net back price from Europe, uh, and Europe right now, LNG is around $45 a gigajoule compared to our 10 that we have now. Uh, so if it works such that, you know, we're kind of cut out of the, because of the size of the LNG investment, if we get, you know, treated as a, a second class citizen, for lack of a better phrase, then it, it could have a detrimental effect. So yeah. that's not a yes or no answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, but anything in in, in uh, energy is a is not uh, straightforward. No, I think it's a great answer. I've, I've been looking at the inflation numbers, and seafood inflation in New Brunswick is up twice as much as it is in the rest of the country for the same reason. We're pumping all that lobster down to New England, and and uh, it's actually leading to higher prices here, which makes no sense. I'm calling Don for export controls on lobster. What do you think about that? <laughs> Uh, anyway, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the future of natural gas. We have it in here in New Brunswick. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when the franchise was originally given. They were projecting 70,000 customers within 20 years. And I think they're at maybe 12 or 13,000 residential customers today. Natural gas is also used on the island. A CNG is shipped to the island, as I understand it, for some of the industrial uses. Can you tell us what you think the future of natural gas is in Atlantic Canada? Are we going to be pumping natural gas through 2050? Are there opportunities to actually expand the use of natural gas for specific segments of uh, clients? Or, or, or are you expecting it to kind of wind down over the next 20 or 30 years? Well, we are still growing. Uh, we're growing at a rate of about 5% a year, which which I think for any business is um, is a decent rate of growth. And we're projecting that we do a 10, we refresh our 10-year plan every year. And we're projecting that sort of growth to continue. We have demand for natural gas. It's uh, convenient, affordable, cost-effective. People like the fact that it's delivered by underground infrastructure. So we have, if you look at our reliability and we try to compare ourselves to, uh, to electricity, uh, an average customer for Heritage Gas would experience a one hour outage once in every 70 years. So that's a generational <laughs> outage. Well, wow. more than a generational outage, wow. I guess, but perhaps uh, my life, my lifetime sort of, sort of a, uh, scenario hopefully a little little uh, might be a little longer than that but but so underground and and so we have a one in 70 we're relatively new utility but if you go even look at the uh older utilities with a lot older infrastructure that's about a one in you know anywhere from a one in 50 to a one in 70 outage experience lasting an hour so you know people really appreciate the reliability of natural gas and we have customers that put in natural gas generators so that when the power goes out, as we know all too often uh, for many people, it does. They appreciate it. We have industrial customers where uh, power interruption can be hugely damaging. Uh, you know, it's not just a matter of the lights go off and then they come back on. They can lose a tremendous amount of, of power. And so we've done some work with combined heat power system uh, analysis so that you know, there's an automatic switch over to natural gas in the event of, event of an outage. So I'm giving you, unfortunately, a long answer to a short question, but it's just to uh, underscore the fact that uh, that people, uh, you know, have a continuing desire to uh, access it. We wanted to ask you about the goal of net zero emissions by 2050 and where natural gas plays. I, we'll talk in a minute about hydrogen, but natural gas is... Uh, as you indicated earlier, burns or, or generates less carbon than other fossil fuels. But what is your sense of the role of natural gas uh, in helping us to get to net zero emissions by 2050? Well, we still have a very large percent of our homes and businesses that are running on oil. And uh, I think 
you know, it's a larger percentage of, of homes and businesses running on oil than electricity, I'm su subject to being uh, contradicted on that. But uh, And so in going from oil to natural gas, you can reduce your GHG emissions by about 40%. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting early trend that's happening now where as we electrify, the cost of electricity will continue to, to rise. So while renewables are cheap, the integration costs are very, very high, and and uh, and I, you know, I'm familiar with a number of subject uh, studies on the subject. And so you have utilities, electric utilities, and governments that are saying we need to manage the peak that's going to come from all of this electrification of building heat and EVs and etc. And so in Europe and most more recently in Quebec, the government of Quebec directed the two utilities to work together. Uh, where natural gas would be used to serve the peak because, you know, we have um, the ability to ramp up gas through pipelines much more readily than you can ramp up electrons across constrained transmission wires. And so uh, Hydro-Quebec and Energier, our equivalent there, uh, have advanced uh, to the point of, you know, determining some rates where effectively the electric utility pays the get natural gas utility to shave the peak so they're not building out hundreds and hundreds of megawatts of generation to serve the four or five coldest days of the year. So so that's another a reason that I think that, you know natural gas has a has a future and uh, Nova Scotia Power in its most recent IRP actually made reference to this as well. Your corporate strategy to address uh, net zero emissions uh, is an integrated strategy system in Nova Scotia that would link electricity and gas grids, as I understand it. How would that help achieve the goal of net zero emissions by 2050, John? Yeah, so I'll give uh, you know one example, and that is uh, wind. So right now, um, we have 600 megawatts of wind in the province. And uh, I think most people would say we're fairly saturated with with, with wind. So 600 megawatts on a 2,400 megawatt system, about 20 on a capacity basis. You know, we're we're getting up there in terms of uh, you know the wind on on the system in, in compared to any province in Canada. And there's there's discussions, obviously, as the in order to, you know in order to achieve those targets that have been set. You know, maybe another 600 megawatts of wind. So with every an incremental one megawatt of wind, it's going to operate at less and less, a lower and lower capacity factor. So what do you do with the surplus wind? Well, one thing you could do is is uh, use that energy to make green, you know, hydrogen, green hydrogen in particular, because it's coming from renewable. You store it in, in uh, you know, either in our system as a hydrogen blend with natural gas or in its own, you know, particular uh, hydrogen storage uh, uh, facility. And then when you have to deal with the peak the next morning and the next evening, that hydrogen can be converted back into electricity and reintroduced to the grid. Um, and again, moving away from having to build, you know, additional peaking, peaking resources. So that's, you know, that's the focus of what's uh, been happening in Quebec and uh, the focus of some discussions that we're starting to have with, uh, with Nova Scotia Power about how that might work here. That's actually very encouraging. Uh, maybe you can tell us what you mean. I, I noticed in your strategy, you, you keep referring to renewable natural gas. I'm curious about what you mean by that and, and how could it be produced in Nova Scotia? Yeah, so renewable natural gas comes from um, methane that is naturally released through decomposition from landfills. Uh, we have natural gas that gets released from solid waste treatment. And so a lot of that is released directly into the environment. And, uh, and of course, methane is a much more impactful molecule than CO2 is. And so if you can capture the methane that's coming off of landfills, uh, capture it coming from solid waste facilities, and even look forward into the future of taking wood waste and converting that into some gaseous product. But, but anyway, the, if you can capture that, then not only is it zero emitting, but because you're removing it from the environment, displacing fossil natural gas out of the ground, many jurisdictions consider renewable natural gas to be negative emitting. In other words, you get a credit for every unit of energy that, that you consume. 
We wanted to ask you a little bit more about hydrogen and where it plays in your strategy, but bef- but can you sort of help the listeners understand what we're actually talking about there? I think it's a little confusing to people. You're you're liquefying, you're producing and liquefying hydrogen, and then you're able to distribute it through your existing natural gas storage and pipeline infrastructure. Can you tell us a little, just a layman's uh, view of what you're actually talking about when we talk about hydrogen? Sure. So if we produce hydrogen from uh, renewable wind, then uh, through an electrolyzer, you can take the hydrogen that you're producing and inject it into our, our natural gas system. And studies have uh, shown, well, it, and particularly for our system and the one in Liberty, New Brunswick, uh, Liberty, New Brunswick system, which is also very modern and is mainly com- comprised of plastic hydrogen, ready plastic, uh, you can blend up to 30% hydrogen you know, before you have to consider what the impact would be on uh, appliances and burner tips and and that sort of thing. So that is a, a fundamental part of our strategy going forward. So what are the different ways to produce hydrogen? I know the refinery apparently is the largest, in St. John here is the largest producer of hydrogen right now in the region, but how, how do you actually produce this hydrogen? Well, there's a myriad ways of doing it, and and more seem to come along every every month. But a, a number of them are, you know, well established in terms of the technology, um, and others are very much, uh, you know, in the in states of being various states of early uh, R and D. So uh, the most common ways of producing it now are uh, they're denoted by by color. So you hear about gray hydrogen, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, etc. Uh, those colors uh, are related to how it's produced, but then also what happens with the car- any carbon that may come off uh, as a result of that. So gray hydrogen is uh, produced from a fossil fuel. And so you, uh, you heat uh, uh, methane, natural gas in the absence of, of oxygen, and, and you produce hydrogen and carbon and, and, and CO2. And that's not all that environmentally friendly, you know, using a fossil fuel to make hydrogen. What we're looking at doing here in Nova Scotia is uh, producing green hydrogen. And so green hydrogen is produced from renewable renewable resources. Uh, uh, wind is obviously the most uh, promising, but when you think about tidal um, nuclear, you know, all of the, there's there's a myriad other, uh, other ways to produce uh produce hydrogen and then blue hydrogen is uh is where you you produce it from from fossil fuels but then you capture the co2 that gets emitted and and uh store it underground so they call it carbon capture uh and storage ccs so those are the the main types but again what we're concentrating on with our you know really great wind asset here wind uh resources is to make uh green hydrogen so just one last question on hydrogen if, if you look to your future your system is it possible in the future that that you could be punching liquefied hydrogen liquid hydrogen through your infrastructure or did you do you think it's going to take it would take a significant upgrade to the pipes and everything you said 30 percent is fine but you ever envision that getting to 100 percent? we do um our our infrastructure in Nova Scotia is, is about 94% plastic. That is capable of 100% hydrogen. There are um, a number of utilities and jurisdictions that are using you know, anywhere today between 50 and 50% hydrogen. So the state of Hawaii has a natural gas system that uses 15% hydrogen. There's a number of Asian cities that are using 50% hydrogen. And uh, there's a number of utilities that uh, and jurisdictions that are have plans to get to 100% hydrogen. The UK, for example, is looking at, at uh, you know, taking up their old infrastructure and laying down uh, new <laughs> plastic pipes to move towards 100% hydrogen. So we, we have a similar aspirational goal to, uh, you know, initially move to 20 to 30% hydrogen. And then from there to look at what has to happen, you know, downstream with our customers. And we have a number of uh, studies underway with uh, some, one of the foremost companies in the world, DNV, that uh, has done a tremendous amount of work on this. So we're actively engaged with them and and others in the industry to say, you know, how do we move beyond 30%? I wanted to ask you a bit of a hard question, but because you're 
I'm so familiar with hydrogen. You're one of the few people we can talk to about this. <laughs> what percentage of energy do you expect might be provided by hydrogen in the province by 2050? I know that's a hard question, but like you must have at least looked at the potential. Yeah, we have uh, here in the Maritimes and, and the uh, federal government has d- developed a hydrogen strategy and looked very specifically at the answer to that question. So the, the answer in the federal government's uh, hydrogen strategy was that by 2050, they would like to see end use energy being about 30% hydrogen. And okay. uh, we've done a study here through Net Zero Atlantic, formerly OERA, they they uh, were the project manager on the study, but there were a number of people, Liberty Utilities and ourselves and others that, uh, and the province of Nova Scotia that were funders of it, to say, what could we do in the Maritimes? And the answer they came up with was uh, about uh, 20%, maybe a little over 20%. And and if you look to similar studies that are being done in Europe, uh, interestingly enough, you, you, you get that same answer. Some of them are as high as 28%. But it's, it's a very similar answer uh, to, to, to your question. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that people may not recognize with hydrogen, and I'm just starting to realize this, is that there are certain applications where it's really, really important, like aviation, for instance. That is probably a big substitute fuel that you wouldn't fly planes. You're not going to fly jet airplanes, I don't think, by battery. At least I, I don't think so, maybe. But uh, So that's one. I want to ask you something else that I, I found interesting. You're currently the chair, and you referenced this a little earlier too, of the Atlantic Hydrogen Alliance. Can you tell us a little bit about the alliance uh, that you're an active member on and what it, what its role is and mandate? Be happy to. So the alliance was formed last October. There were eight founding companies ourselves. Uh, we, we as Heritage Gas we were one of those eight founding companies. And we came together uh to consider our position as small provinces uh, in Eastern Canada and uh, you know, came to the realization that if we were to have a voice at the federal level and, uh, and if we wanted to secure some of the funding that's being made available through a variety of different funding mechanisms, we'd be better speaking in a unified way than each of us as small provinces going to the federal government together. And so, uh, and so we formed the uh, alliance and its mandate is to support the development of the hydrogen value chain uh, to enable that transition to a clean, low uh, carbon economy in the future with all, and I'll add lib, that, that's the mandate, but I'll just add lib a, a little bit to, to just, you know, reflect back on some of what we were talking about earlier with the potential for economic uh, development. So we have uh, grown quickly. We now have 57 members from the initial eight. Uh, There's no membership fee. uh, So it's largely being propelled forward by volunteer efforts. Uh, But we are fortunate in that Net Zero Atlantic is uh, serving as our secretariat. So they're uh, providing some resources to us to help administer the work of the the group and to to, to uh, organize us and and uh, make sure we're 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 staying on task and following through on the various action items. We, we have four working groups that we uh, uh, that that came out of the hydrogen alliance and and I can speak to those very briefly if you like. Well, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the hydrogen hubs or the or, or the initiatives, but Don and I are all about economic development. And so every time we import electricity from Quebec or we import gas from Western Canada, that means very little economic development or economic benefit here, other, excuse me, other than the end use, but in the production, there's very little economic benefit here. So can you tell us a little bit more about what these hydrogen hubs are and the economic opportunity? Sure. The, the hubs are really the coming together of uh, companies along the value chain. So you've got to have a, uh, a source of demand and a source of supply. And then, uh, you know, obviously you want some ability to move the hydrogen from supply to demand. And ideally you'd like those to be somewhat co-located. And so if you think about, you know, uh, where we are in Nova Scotia, we have a port, uh, which you could see, you know, having increase an increasing demand for, for hydrogen. So, uh, that could be, you know, the on uh, the drage vehicles, the onshore vehicles, but there's also a lot of talk about 
switching over to a hydrogen-based project like uh, fuel like methanol or, or ammonia as a mode of fuel source. And then if you think about heavy transportation, uh, we've got, you know, bus fleets, we've got heavy trucking corridor here. <laughs> and so there's all, all sorts of opportunity to move over from fossil fuels to, to green hydrogen and, uh, you know, not be buying diesel from, from somewhere, you know, somewhere else or, 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 uh, or natural, you know, natural gas or, or whatever, what, what have you. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that one of the problems with renewable energy like wind and solar is the, is the variability when it's not blowing wind or when the sun's not shining. One of the options, of course, to, to balance that or offset that would be grid scale storage or large scale storage. You talked earlier about actually using excess wind and solar potentially to produce hydrogen. What do we need to do to ensure availability of this renewable energy, regardless if the wind blows or the sun shines? The benefit of hydrogen is that it can be stored in at, at size. It can be produced at size. Um, and so, again, it can be used to as as electric for, as a fuel for electrical generation. So uh, much of the new uh, gas turbines that are coming into the market now can take um, 35% hydrogen. They're moving to 75% hydrogen. Eventually, they'll get to power generation that's 100% uh, hydrogen. And given that it you know, electric storage has a very low, there's a very low energy density in a battery. And, and you, we were talking earlier about, about trucking and, and, you know, and aviation, we may not get there with electricity. And the reason is if you look at, uh, you know, a, a tractor trailer and you think about having to power that for a period of time to move across New Brunswick and into Quebec, ha- if you, if you were to power that with batteries, about half of the weight of the, of your, uh, Cargo would be taken up with the weight of batteries, and that's again that low car, that low energy density. But you know, there's a lot of applications for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles today, uh, where heavy transportation modes are moving over to uh, to fuel cell electric uh, batteries. Yeah, uh, John, there's been a lot of talk uh, about the need for an Atlantic Loop to access hydroelectricity from Labrador and uh, Quebec as a way to eliminate the use of coal to generate electricity. It's a big t- uh, price tag that goes along with that, obviously, but uh, I wonder how realistic is this proposal in your opinion and what, what might be the pros and cons of such a such a loop? Well, I think if the Atlantic Loop were to get built and it was affordable energy, it would be a great thing for Nova Scotia and uh, and New Brunswick. The challenges, of course, are that you have, you know, a combination of private companies and crown corporations. You're spanning multiple jurisdictions. So you've got Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, as well as, you know, likely Newfoundland and Labrador, because uh, Quebec has come out and said that um, they don't intend to build out uh, more hydro projects beyond what's already on the on the drawing board. A, a, a challenge as well is that... Uh, Hydro-Quebec's integrated resource plan shows that they're going to have a capacity and peak shortfall in in and around 2026 and 2027. So they're actually going to be in, you know, require significant amounts of, of electricity as they electrify and as they grow their economy. And so uh, we will be competing. And, and so there's a question of how do they meet their own demands as they as they go forward. So they're talking about renewable RFPs. I think another challenge is that we'll have to bid it away from a lot of other people <laughs> that are very anxious to have it. So uh, I, I don't think that uh, Hydro-Quebec will be looking to give us a, a break <laughs> relative to what they might be able to sell it into the U.S. for. And and the the challenge that I think we've seen over time is that, you know, governments change. Ministers change, premiers change, deputy ministers change. And so if you're thinking about something that needs to be negotiated over the course of several years, you know, it's it's a challenging thing to do just within one province um, as governments turn over. So now you've got, you're going to multiply that by four. And, uh, you know, the premier has been very clear that the, the province of Nova Scotia would, would need $2 billion in federal funding in order to make the Atlantic Loop affordable for Nova Scotians. And that number gets multiplied by some larger amount for, for all of the other provinces. And we've seen with large 
projects such as this, there is a tendency, very unfortunately, for these projects to go way beyond budget, to go way beyond schedule. We can only look to our our neighboring uh, province to see an example of that and the economic impact. And I I think um, one other challenge is, is, uh, you know, I'll say social license. So, you know, often there's the term of social license used to say, can this proceed or not? Well, it has to have social license. And I, and I think social, social license is critically important, but it's never accurately defined. You know, what, what constitutes social license? At what point do, you know, uh, X number of people who are against a project, you know, say that we no longer have social license. So, so that perhaps sounds like some more challenges than, than opportunity. Well, one of so the things I, that's really clear, though, uh, just to follow up on that, uh, is that you know both Nova Scotia and, to a lesser degree, New Brunswick are faced with closing coal-generated electricity plants that will strand a lot of capital costs. So that there's another cost that will have to be recovered from taxpayers, ratepayers. I'm sorry, on top of this, and uh, and it's one of the reasons used uh, to advocate for Atlantic Loop. And 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 of course, it's, uh, they talk about five million billion dollars to upgrade the transmission grid uh, to accommodate the loop. They're all looking for federal money to do this, so that there wouldn't be an impact on taxpayers or ratepayers in this region. You're quite right that that number would likely double or more. But uh, we already have a bit of the part of the loop in place, don't we? Between the Mar- with the maritime link that connects Nova Scotia to Labrador uh, Power, but is is this the best way to getting to net zero by 2050? I guess that's the big question. Even though it's tough, it's hard to do, it's expensive. Is this the best alternative given the stranded assets that are likely to happen as a result of getting to Yeah, I, I think zero? what happens is, uh, or, or what we've been asking for within the province of Nova Scotia is let's not have each of the energy providers do their own 10-year plan or 20-year plan. So Nova Scotia Power does an IRP we do an IRP. We're obviously looking uh, to provide affordable power or energy to our customers, but we do it in isolation of one another. And I think what we've asked the province to do is have a look at an integrated energy resource plan for all of the providers, so that if there's a if there are alternatives like hydrogen, like uh, integration between the utilities, we can compare that to something like the Atlantic Loop. So that's, that's and, and even regionally, that's something that, that could be considered. Often we get looking for another word other than fixated, because that sounds negative, but we get, we get fixated on these mega projects. And in getting uh, fixated on them, do we lose some other opportunities that, that may be out there? So yeah. there's no doubt there's a challenge with, with, the, uh, with the thermal assets uh, a number of the planned plant closures have been pushed back, and uh, it is very challenging to take off uh, these very large thermal stations and replace them with intermittent wind. One of the uh, things that are that's happening here, but in other jurisdictions, is they're building out very large amounts of natural gas-fired fast-acting turbines. Uh, so in, effectively, and we're looking at, at converting in the province, coal coal units to gas units. So effectively, you know, we'll be moving a lot of that coal generation. We'll have to move to something that's, you know, re- reliably dispatchable, like like natural gas. So, John, most people don't understand it's going to take several decades and more to fully decarbonize the economy. I don't think they understand. Nova Scotia, I think, has the highest share of households that are still using uh, heating oil, uh, the entire fishing fleet is still ran on fossil fuels. Of course, the entire transport, most of the transportation system in, in general is still run on fossil fuels. So can you provide our listeners with what they might expect over the next decade or so? Like what, what are those um, steps that we need to take to, to get to be making progress on between now and 2050? Yeah, I think I'll say that I, th- I think it's critically important that we address the issues of climate change. I mean, we, we look around and we see uh, just how those effects are being felt. And so, you know, we, we need to act as quickly as we, we can. But it, the energy systems in the province are extremely complex. 
And a lot of people are under the impression that, you know, you can kind of flip one switch and flip the fossil generation, flip the other one on. It's much more challenging than, than that. You've got to think about how do you maintain grid stability as you take off these large units and replace them with reliable units, not have brownouts and powerouts. And it will take, I do believe that it's going to, to be affordable. It will it's going to take longer than, than a, a decade, and we'll still continue to see uh, uh, some traditional energy sources being used, you know, two decades from now. It just, it's just too challenging. And I think one of the issues is affordability. So uh, there's been some recent uh, polling done uh, by one of the large polling firms. And, it, and, the, and the question was, how much would you be, out of, out of your monthly budget, would you be willing to pay to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I think over half of the respondents, you know, said something, and I, I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it's on the order of $75 or, dollars or something like that. So uh, we have, you know, high rates of, we have, a, you know, some challenges in terms of the people that are, have low incomes. And I think we've seen situations where you, you increase people's personal expense line and, you um, and they'll they'll respond to that quickly. So we, we need to find a way to, to make the change. Absolutely, we need to find a way to do it affordably. And I think uh, I think green hydrogen is is one of the one of the ways that we can find affordable means to do it. Right now, hydrogen is expensive, but it will follow the line that we've seen for wind and solar. You know, wind started. There were projects at one hundred and eighty dollars per megawatt hour. There was a recent uh, RFP that went for twenty five. Solar was, you know, vastly more expensive, and it's probably now a tenth of what it, uh, you know, initially cost. So as you scale up uh, electrolyzers and other technologies, you will see economies of scale and uh, efficiencies. So Nova Scotia has among the highest energy costs in Canada, particularly if you look at it on a as a share of household spending. So I guess just picking up a little bit on what you said, what will the impact of net zero have on energy costs and, and what can we do to, you know, to address that? Like we, it sounds to me like a very, very challenging situation. If it's going to be more expensive for energy, are we going to get significant public pushback? Yeah, I, th- I think the answer to that is yes, we've got some, a clean fuel standard that's going to increase the price of gasoline. Neil Jacobson spoke to that on an earlier podcast of, of yours. There's a lot that's coming uh, down the line. I was uh, attending a, a conference in Vancouver uh, a month or two ago, and there was a professor there that talked about the Great Awakening, which is people don't fully appreciate all of the taxes that are coming into uh, into effect in the coming years. The the carbon tax will double the price of uh, the fossil fuel commodity. Um, and so uh, when I think, you know, sometimes I think about um, the question, try to, trying to simplify it in terms of our existing generating assets, you know, we still have a, a mortgage on those, if you will. <laughs> and now we're gonna take out another mortgage for the new renewables. And so we'll be paying two mortgages at the same at the same time so it it, it is going to be challenging i i am uh, well i think we need to move quickly um it, you know it, it will be uh, difficult to understand you know what the solution is i i think uh, it's been said that you know 50% of the technologies that we need to do it are probably aren't in existence today but i i am encouraged by the rate at which some of the the progress is being made. And even here at Dalhousie, there's some really fantastic work being done with uh, uh, hydrogen electrolyzers and how to reduce their costs and that sort of thing. So, so it, you know, I am optimistic in terms of the technological advances, but uh, there are other things that I think are going to be very challenging for us. Well, John, just a final question. I, I I think I, take it based on your comments that you feel p- pretty bullish about the future of hydrogen uh, heritage gas and the role that you can play in um, getting us to a greener um, economy uh, in the long term but you know i guess the the, the question i wanted to end with is uh, you know the, that net zero target for 2050 you're you're one of the players you know how confident are you that Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada, Canada 
can achieve that uh, target based on where we are today and, and how you feel about the future. I am optimistic. I think as the as time goes along, there'll be a greater awareness of the fact that there is a cost to be paid and we will have to change our lifestyles. I think there'll be a greater acceptance of that. We'll have to figure out how we uh, generate energy, how we store it, how we use it in ways that are new and different from the, from the ways that, that are, we're using it today. So I am, I am confident that the technologies and the awareness and the acceptance will come. It's just a question of, you know, when, when, is there, when do those inflection points in technology and when do those inflection points in acceptance of the costs and the change in lifestyles, you know, when do they occur? So, John, thank you so much for joining us on the Insights Podcast today and sharing your insight on the transition to the greener economy. Thanks very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.